There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. Several years ago, I discovered something absolutely amazing about the Lord's Prayer. In just a few over 60 words, Jesus established the biblical worldview, the doctrinal base of Christianity as opposed to and in comparison to other religions of the world. In statement after statement, phrase after phrase, he shows the uniqueness of Christianity in areas like the nature of God, the nature of the universe, and the nature of true salvation. I thought, what genius, what genius. Of course he's a genius. He's the creator of the universe. But once you see how the Lord's Prayer shows the details of the Christian worldview, you'll never look at it the same again. And you may well use it to share the gospel with others. Two times the Lord's Prayer appears in Scripture. The first time is in Matthew chapter 6, in that beginning sermon that Jesus launched his ministry with the Sermon on the Mount. And then over in Luke chapter 11, the disciples asked him, they requested, Lord, teach us to pray. And he gave it again. So he was reminding them of the approach that they'd heard at the very beginning, but it needed to get ingrained in their spirit. And it needs to get ingrained in our spirits too. First, he told them what not to do. There's two different ways of praying. He exhorted the disciples not to mimic or not to repeat in their prayer life. First, he said, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you pray, enter into your room, and when you've shut your door, pray to your Father in the secret place. And your Father who sees you in secret will reward you openly. And so now he's contrasting the approach of pompous, prideful, religious-sounding prayer versus approaching God with humility, sincerity, and realness. And then he goes on and says, when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask him. So now he's juxtaposing these two approaches. In Eastern religions, often you find adherents chanting mantras, a mechanical, monotonous, magical approach that's supposed to manipulate this force, this Godhead into doing whatever 
these seekers desire it to do, not him, because it's just a force, a level of consciousness to be controlled. And it's actually treating God like a machine into which you insert the right formula in order to get the desired results. Well, that's not how you approach God. He's your father, and he already knows what you have need of. And the approach should be relational and conversational, not the rigid approach of a monotone repetition of some mantra over and over again, which is a ridiculous way to approach the creator of the universe. Then he said, in this manner, therefore, pray. And I'm going to quote the entire Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, I probably pray this prayer every day but I use the Lord's Prayer as a framework for my approach, and I insert into it creative expressions that build on each one of the unique phrases of that prayer. I don't want it to ever become just a repetitious prayer that I repeat over and over again in a mantra-like fashion, but it is an approach that covers vitally important areas that you should cover when you pray. Let's take it word by word, phrase by phrase, and see how it unveils truth, how it unveils the Christian worldview as compared to other religions. First of all, the first word, our, is very revealing because the approach of almost all Eastern religions or Eastern modes of spirituality, including the New Age movement, which is drawn from Hinduism, is to withdraw from the world and from flesh consciousness into an inner world where we can somehow experience mystical things that usher us to a place called enlightenment. Buddhism's main goal, for instance, is to overcome suffering by eliminating desire. And the way to achieve that is to withdraw into detachment. And so many religions emphasize what they think is a reduction of ego, but really it ends up becoming a magnification of ego. It becomes egocentric because they go inward trying to find truth, trying to find fulfillment, trying to find answers, they go inward. The emphasis in true Christianity, though, is not internal, but external. It's all about people. It's all about helping others. And it's far more powerful as a result. For this reason, the Lord's Prayer does not begin with the word my. It begins with the word Hour because it reaches out and embraces others. We're in this together. We're helping one another. We're upholding one another. In fact, you will not find the words I, me, my, mine, or myself 
anywhere in the Lord's Prayer. But you do find the word our three times. You find the word us four times. You find the word we one time. And you find the word your four times. So it's all about him and it's all about us. It's all about being a part of the body of Christ. By this shall all men know you're my disciples, by your love one for another, not by knowing that you went into the woods for 12 years until you achieved enlightenment. Because the moment you find Jesus, you are enlightened concerning the truth. And from that point forward, it's all about helping others come into the light. The second word is the word father. This really establishes the Christian worldview because that was Jesus' emphasis. In fact, you only find the word father a sprinkling of times in the Old Testament, but you find it over 250 times in the New Testament. Jesus came to reveal the father. He said, he who has seen me has seen my father. A good father is a protector, a provider, and a preserver of his offspring. And that shows personal involvement, loving concern. That kind of concept is not found in Buddhism, which is basically atheistic. And it's not found in Hinduism or Taoism, which imagine ultimate reality to be just an impersonal life force. In Hinduism, it's called Brahman, and I did use the word it because it's not a he. It's not a loving father, but it's a level of consciousness, a cosmic energy that flows through the entire universe that you do not pray to. You don't pray to Brahman because Brahman will not respond. Brahman is just a force, and in Taoism, is very similar. In fact, we'll cover some more facets of Taoism in a few minutes. What about Islam, though? Did you know in the Quran you find 99 names for God and not one of them is Father? Because in Islam, you have no concept of God in the role of being a Father because one of the major tenets of Islam is that God has no son. God is not begotten, neither does he beget. And it's a blasphemous thought in Islam for anyone to say that Jesus was God manifested in the flesh. Because one of the greatest of all sins in Islam is something called shirk, which is attributing divinity to anything or anyone but Allah. And so it's unthinkable. God has no son. And so if God had no initial, only begotten son, he certainly doesn't have any other sons in whom he dwells personally, according to Islamic teaching. But see, the basic thing about Christianity, the primary message is that as many as received him, as many as received the Lord Jesus Christ, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. That's relational. He's my father. I'm his son. That first statement, two words long, establishes the Christian message as compared to so many other approaches. Then 
we find the nature of the universe revealed. Our Father, who art in heaven, who art in heaven, that's directly opposite to the pantheistic view of Hinduism. See, Hinduism believes in something called pantheism, and that comes from two root words, pantheos, that means all is God. And the belief is that the universe is not a creation of God, but an emanation of God. That the Godhead emanated out of itself the entire universe so that everything has a divine essence at its core. And there's variations of that belief, but basically that's the foundational belief in New Age spirituality as well, because that's drawn from Hinduism quite a bit. So there is a distinct difference, though, in Christianity between the creator and the creation. We do not believe in monism, that all is one. All things are of one essential substance. See, God is outside of the material universe, and he's outside of us prior to a salvation experience. And so that statement establishes the Christian viewpoint. Our Father who art in heaven. Our Father in heaven. What's the next statement? Hallowed be your name. So important. The word hallowed means holy, sacred. And I'm sure many religions would teach that the name of God is sacred, but they have various names for God that are wrongly placed and reveal characteristics that are not a part of his personality. Let me explain. For instance, as I just mentioned, the highest reality in Hinduism is Brahman. And yet, if I used that name in my approach to God, and if God responded he would be making a very confusing statement about himself because he would be verifying that he's an impersonal life force. See? Or what about some of the individual gods in Hinduism? It used to be that Indra, I-N-D-R-A, was one of the most popular Hindu gods, but then there's a myth that Indra was caught committing adultery with a sage's wife, and that sage cursed him with hundreds of oval-like, oval-shaped objects all over his body, which was supposed to be representative of the female sex organ. And so he became a very degenerate deity in the eyes of people. In fact, there is a teaching in Hinduism that it was through Indra that adultery came into the world. Now, what if I was a worshiper of Indra and I tried to approach God using that name? If God responded, he would be verifying that horrible myth that goes along with that deity. Can you see how important it is to get the name right? If you referred to him as Krishna, according to the myth that goes along with Krishna, He had 16,108 wives when he was on the earth, and he had 10 children by every one of those wives. Hmm. So if God responded to that name, not only would he be verifying that those 
relationships took place, but he would also be verifying what Krishna taught in the Bhagavad Gita, things like reincarnation. So if someone uses that name in trying to approach God, God's not going to respond because the name is so important. In Taoism, the founder of Taoism is supposed to be Lao Tzu, and some say he's a mythical character, that he never really existed, which is probably the truth. But in the Tao Te Ching, which is their sacred book, he said, now listen closely, there was something undifferentiated and yet complete which existed before heaven and earth, soundless and formless. It depends on nothing and does not change. It operates everywhere and is free from danger. It may be considered the mother of the universe. I do not know its name. I call it Tao, which is T-A-O. And the word Tao means the way. And so the teaching in Taoism is not a personal name for God, but just a name that indicates this force that flows through the universe is something, if we yield to it, that will guide us into our future, guide us into our eternal destiny, the way. Soundless and formless, soundless and formless. Did you hear that? That's how the Godhead is described, soundless. So it's not a God you can communicate with. So if I approached God from a Taoist point of view, God's not going to respond because he would be verifying some wrong interpretations of his nature. And I could go into so many others. The name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run into it and they are safe. And the name that was given to the Son of God by the angel Gabriel was Yeshua, or in English, Jesus, which means salvation. And when you call on that name, it's attached to the doctrinal beliefs about his life, how he was born of a virgin, how he lived a sinless life, how he was crucified for the sins of humanity, how he was buried, but he rose again three days later and ascended to heaven, promising to return. That's why when you call on the name, the triune name of the triune God, the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord connects with the Father, Jesus connects with the Son, Christ, meaning the anointing, or the anointed one connects with the Holy Spirit. So that's the triune name of the triune God. And when you call on that name, whosoever shall call on the name, not a name, not just any name that any religion gives to God, which is what Sikhism teaches. It doesn't really matter what name you use. Oh, yes, it does matter because only through the name of Jesus can forgiveness flow into your life and deliverance come to your soul. So that sets a very important doctrine in place. Hallowed be your name. That's got to be a discovery that we make. And then he said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's contrasted to the Hindu belief, the New Age belief, that the kingdom is already within every human being. 
In fact, I used to quote Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21 when I was a yoga teacher back in 1970 to try and prove that the kingdom was permeating all of the universe and was already within every human being. Let me read those two verses. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. And the way it was spoken, many people have interpreted to mean that the kingdom of God is already within every human being. But Jesus was speaking hypothetically. See, it's like a psychologist saying to some person who has tremendous mental conflicts and emotional struggles, and if he says to him, joy is within you, it's not an admission that joy is actually resident in that person, but that if that person discovers true joy, it won't be in material things or external things. It will be an internal experience. And really, that's what Jesus was saying to those who were really detractors. They came to withstand him, to catch him in something that he said so they could condemn him. And they said, tell us when the kingdom of God is going to appear. And he said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. You have to understand that they thought the Messiah would raise up an army and run the Romans out and take Israel back city by city and that they would be able to observe the Messiah's advance and the advance of the kingdom. And he was saying the kingdom's not going to happen like that. It's not going to be an army like Gideon raised up or like Joshua commanded. It's a different approach now. It's not external, it's internal. And so he made it very plain that we should pray your kingdom come. Now, first, the kingdom has to come into our hearts because in John chapter 3, verse 5, He said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So if you can't enter the kingdom of God without being born again, spiritually reborn, the kingdom of God cannot enter you until you're born again. That's when your soul is saturated with kingdom life and kingdom influence. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So it's the character of the king of the kingdom that permeates the kingdom. And when you're born into the kingdom, the kingdom comes into you. In fact, there's a very powerful word used in Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. It says, giving thanks to the Father who has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. And that word meet means fit, worthy, suitable, or sufficient. Giving thanks unto the Father who has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, for he has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of God's dear Son. Now, if we're not yet in the kingdom, when we're children of darkness, when we're unsaved, when we're not in a relationship with God, when we're not sons of God yet, 
then certainly the kingdom is not in us. And so it's very important to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that happens personally to begin with. And then you want the kingdom's influence to permeate every part of your life. You want kingdom influence in your family, in your business, in your career, in everything that pertains to you. Whenever I go to the pulpit, I pray before I preach, your kingdom come, your will be done, because I want the kingdom of God to dominate the atmosphere and not just an intellectual presentation of the doctrines of God's word. I want kingdom penetration in the room because the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. See, when the kingdom comes, lives are transformed miraculously. Now, that's the first part of the Lord's Prayer, and I'm going to come back with a second episode where I give some really phenomenal insights into the remainder of the Lord's Prayer. It's just too much to go into on just one episode. So thank you for joining me, but be sure to come back and be with me in the next episode where we'll explore the rest of this prayer that Jesus gave the church. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shreve's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.